Thank you for downloading the weekly sermon from Trinity Reformed Church in Bloomington, Indiana. To find more great content, please check out our website at trinityreformed.org. Enjoy the sermon. Good morning. The text we're looking at from God's Word this morning is Luke chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Luke 18, 9 to 14. It's a story that Jesus told, and it's a story that we know as the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. What is a parable? A parable is a, a short story that illustrates or presses home some spiritual point. Jesus used parables a lot. They press home a spiritual point. They press it home real hard um, or real sharply. It's like, a, it's like something that pops balloons. That's what parables do. They pop balloons, balloons of pride and conceit, balloons of ignorance or uh, usually self-righteousness. And this is like the sharpest of the ones to poke self-righteousness. It's interesting among the parables, they don't often, um, we're not often told immediately in the text what the parable is about. Some, often people are left confused by them. Uh, Luke, though, helps us out as a writer and with this one, and it's unusual in this regard. It tells us right up front who it's for and what it's addressing in them. Jesus' parables are meant to cut. They're very sharp tools. Jesus is described in the book of Revelation as having a sword that comes out of his mouth. Several times in Revelation, he's described this way. He is the word of God, the logos, the living word, and he is sharp. His word is sharp. It's meant to do battle. It's meant to cut. It says in the book of Hebrews that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow, and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. It opens up secrets, the deep secrets of man. That's what, so all of God's word does that. It's all the word of Christ, the, and all of it is sharp. All of it cuts. The parables are particularly sharp and particularly cutting. Jesus does not wound to no purpose. He wounds to heal. That's the purpose. He draws his sword to give life to those who will be taught by him. And so this morning, so his, his sword is like a surgeon's scalpel. Let's put ourselves under his care, the care of our great physician, and allow him to cut on us today. This is of a type of parable that presents a question to be pondered. Um, and the question is, is which one of these guys is good? It's a, it's a type of parable that Jesus taught, a style, and this is the type it is. Which one of these guys goes to heaven? You tell me. I'm going to put out there two possibilities, and you tell me which one it is. It should be. It's a searching question. And may God's Spirit search and try our hearts as we examine his word together. Let's read it. Luke 18, starting in verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you 
that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, our God, our Father, by your Holy Spirit now, would you search and know our hearts? Would you try us and know our anxious thoughts and see if there's any hurtful or wicked way in us and lead us in the everlasting way? Do this for the sake of Christ Jesus, your Son. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Who was Jesus speaking to? It says... To some people. That word people is less than helpful. I can say that because it's added by our translators gratuitously. (laughs) They felt it would be helpful. I think it's not helpful because I think it introduces a sense of like distance into the scenario. People are people you run into at the mall. You know, I ran into some people. But Jesus, it really should say, he listened to it both ways. He told this parable to some who, versus he told this parable to some people who. It's a little bit more distant. What we, what we have to realize is Jesus spoke hard truths to people he knew with relational cost to himself. People were around him, close followers. This is likely even something he perceived in his own disciples and he, maybe they're on their way to Jerusalem. He is on his way there to die. And he's teaching people things. Somebody, maybe in his circle, in his close circle, he overhears some comment. He perceives some issue in their hearts. And he turns to them. And he says, two men went up to the temple to pray. And so this is how we should hear it. It's like Jeff. Jesus turns to you. He perceives something in you. Zebra. Us. We're his disciples. We're followers of Jesus. This is the kind of thing Jesus would do to us. He would perceive something in us. He would turn and he would tell a cutting story that would cut right to the heart of our sin and expose hypocrisy or self-righteousness in our hearts. There's a lesson for us in that, I'll just say. This is the way our pastors and our elders and our fathers should be. It's very tempting to admire people who specialize in shooting over the wall. You can build a big name for yourself in attacking the culture, or being critical and interpreting the culture. Or have a ministry that is focused on speaking prophetically to the civil authority. You can build a big name for yourself on the internet doing that. You can get a lot of followers, people who will be convinced that you're being very faithful. Jesus did not do that. He did not waste his time on Caesar. What did he waste his time on? His followers addressing 
their sin. If you're looking for a father, if you're looking for a pastor, this is particularly to young men, if you're looking for a man to admire, to emulate, to follow, look for someone like Jesus who will address your sin, not other people's sin. Yes, it's helpful to have folks interpret the world for us, but what we need is this above all. We need somebody who will look at us and put his own relationship with us on the line and say, this is your problem. I'm pointing it out. This is your sin. That's what Jesus did. What was the sin he was addressing? It says that he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. This is what we call self-righteousness. I've tried to come up with a definition of self-righteousness for myself. And here's what I wrote. Self-righteousness is a claim of standing or worth. Self-righteousness is a claim of standing or of worth that we impute to ourselves by means of our own inner voice. Based on selective judgments and subjective criteria, and always coming at the expense of others. I'm going to read it again. Self-righteousness is a claim of standing or worth that we impute to ourselves by means of our own inner voice, and it's based on selective judgments and subjective criteria, and it always comes at the expense of others. So we, all, we, make our, we, we set up our criteria that's convenient for us. We've, we've established the law. And then we evaluate ourselves based on how other people, we perceive other people to measure up to that law that we established. That's at the heart of self-righteousness. This is everywhere. This is very common. This is you and me. And that is, the, that is what you call a false hope. Everybody needs hope. You know that, that inner, your inner voice has to tell you something because you, got, you have this thing inside you called a conscience that God gave to you. It's a gift, a good gift from God. You have a conscience and your conscience accuses you. It says you're guilty. You have failed in many respects. You've done things you shouldn't do. You have failed to do many things you should. You're a failure. You're guilty before God. You're condemned. And we have to come up with something to say back, something that can answer that accusation. We have to come up, we have to quiet or speak to our conscience, soothe it, hope. We've got to give hope to ourselves. It's, a, it's, a, it's overwhelming the voice of conscience. Some people can drink it away. Some people do. Some people escape into entertainment. But the most common answer to self-righteousness on a, but that we've come up with, the best we've come up with in our own human fallen, groping around in the dark state of nature is self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is this thing we can impute value or worth. We can answer back to our conscience and say, well, no, look, here's the criteria and here's how everybody else is doing, and I'm actually doing fairly well. So shut up, conscience. 
And folks, it's, 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 a, it's a hope, it's a scheme, <laughs> it's, a, it's something to try, and it completely fails. It completely fails. What you need is righteousness. And your best attempts at setting up your own law and judging yourself against that law in comparison to others is just hopeless. Not only is it hopeless, it's offensive to God, it robs him of glory, and it turns from the solution that he has provided. He, there is hope. There is an answer to your conscience that accuses you. We confessed it in so many ways already this morning, but in the, the affirmation of faith, how are you righteous before God? A beautiful answer to conscience. My conscience accuses me that I have not obeyed anything that God has commanded me. Yet God, by, I, don't remember, I can't quote it exactly, but it, by mere grace, imputes to me. He imputes to me. This is what you need. Are you listening? You need a voice to answer your conscience, but your voice will never do. It will never satisfy And even if you delude yourself throughout your whole life that it will, it will let you down on the day of judgment. You will see how small and insufficient and deceptive that voice has been. You need a voice of authority. You need to hear God declare. You need God, an external voice to your own, somebody's voice that you can trust, somebody who has power and authority, who is reliable and who always speaks the truth, you and I need him to declare us righteous. That is the only hope, the only satisfactory answer to our conscience and to the problem of the day of judgment. We need God himself to declare us righteous. J.C. Ryle says about self-righteousness that it is the family disease of all the children of Adam From the highest to the lowest, we think more highly of ourselves than we ought to do. We secretly flatter ourselves that we are not as bad as some and that we have something to recommend us to the favor of God. Now, in theory, this is what we've sworn off. This whole scheme of self-righteousness, in theory, is what you and I have sworn off in coming to the cross of Jesus Christ and surrendering to him and saying, help me, I can't help myself, I'm drowning here. Be merciful to me. That's what a Christian is, somebody who swears off every form of self-confidence in favor of the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. That's a Christian. And theoretically, we're Christians, and that's what we've done. So self-righteousness is thankfully not a problem for you and me. The, this, the whole scenario of Jesus' parable, I mean, the parable is useless, right, to Christians, if that's, if that's the case. The whole, it, it just shows two men in the same church Two men doing the same actions, largely, attending the same worship service, can be in very different places. Two men, and you couldn't pick which one was good if you were looking from the outside, which one was right with God, which one stood uh, under God's favor and blessing, and which one didn't. 
That parable only works if we, you and me here, struggle with self-righteousness and need to be called to account by God, called out of our sin, warned against that in ourselves. Theoretically, we've sworn that off, but Jesus calls us to examine our hearts and to ask the question, which of these men is truly righteous? Tell me. And in so doing, we're to examine ourselves and ask ourselves the hard question, which one of these two do I most resemble? So which of these men is righteous? Judging from the outside, it would be hard to tell. Because on the one hand, these men share so much in common. They're both Jews. Tax collectors and Pharisees were both Jews. They probably lived, both of them, in Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the place to be if you were a Pharisee or a tax collector, because that's where the action is. That's the place where you could enjoy the applause of men, if that's what you were after as a Pharisee. It's the place where you could spend your money as a tax collector and with the most enjoyment surrounding you. They're probably sharing the same town. They go to the same church. They're attending the same worship service. They have a lot in common, on the one hand. On the other hand, they could not be more different. But those differences are misleading. One of these men is a Pharisee, and the other one is a tax collector. What is a Pharisee? The Pharisee was part of the educated class of Jews, a conservative, an upholder of tradition, a teacher of others, very careful in the things of God, very careful, punctilious, very careful, upstanding, righteous, clean, generous, as his prayer reveals to us. He's very careful to tie. He's generous, godly as far as men can judge. Anybody around him at the worship service is probably thinking to themselves, there's a godly man. I wish I could be like him. That's a Pharisee. Somebody people looked up to, somebody people trusted as a leader in godliness. What was a tax collector? Well, (laughs) the opposite of that. A, A tax collector was also a Jew, and it was his job to collect taxes from other Jews on behalf of the Roman occupying force. So it's hard to even begin to fathom how despicable that would be (laughs) as a job. Scott Tibbs, the best he could come up with after the first service on the fly was sort of like, man, I don't know if you know if I'm safe to say this. It's such a a spicy illustration. (laughs) It's like you're a black man. Dwayne, you tell me if I'm okay, wherever you are. It's like you're a black man and you are like working for the KKK to rat on your neighbors or something. It's like, it's, this is intense as a profession. It's sneaky. It's dirty. It's something people despise. But it's worse than that. Because your entire income depends on you adding to the bill over and above what the Roman government has levied, the tax that they've levied. You make your income as the 
uh, as the Jewish tax man by overcharging. Everyone knows this. It's part of the game. And you're probably very rich because of it. So just think, that's not the kind of person, if they walked in here, that you would approve of or applaud or think was anywhere near the kingdom of God. So the outside, the outward appearance of these men, the circumstances of their life, of their profession, of their morality, could not be more different. And those differences, it turn out, to be quite misleading. You cannot judge this book by its cover. And that's the scandal at the heart of this parable. You can't judge this book by its cover. You would misjudge it if it was up to you to read. Thankfully, God's judgment is opposite of how we judge. He sees not as man sees. For man, it says in 1 Samuel, looks at the outward appearance, and God judges the heart. And Jesus shows us their hearts in the words of their prayers. Verse 10 says, two men went up into the temple to pray. This was likely understood by the hearers, Jesus' audience, to be taking place in the temple at the time of the evening sacrifice. So there were two sacrifices in the temple in the, in the course of a day, two regular sacrifices that God had appointed as symbolic standing for the need for atonement, the accomplishment of atonement and forgiveness for the nation, for the people. The priests, that was the, the bread and butter of their work were these daily sacrifices. And there were, there were worship services surrounding them that the people were invited to. It was a public spectacle, a public occasion of worship. At the time of the evening sacrifice, we understand that there was, just following the sacrifice, a time of private individual prayer. So free prayer. They offer the sacrifice and then somebody would likely say, let us pray, pray each of us in his heart to the Lord. And given that that was customary at the time, it's likely that everyone's thinking of this, this situation as they're hearing Jesus teach. That was a popular time to come up to the temple. The sacrifice was seen as something that brought us close to the Lord, made our prayers effectual. The sm- the, not only did it, was the smoke a symbol of something coming up to the Lord that was pleasing in his sight, but it there was this tangible thing wafting up through the air. It's sort of like a symbol of prayer ascending. And people would be drawn to it, moved to pray. It was a very moving time. How did the two men in the story use the opportunity that this occasion afforded them? Let's look at the Pharisee's prayer. I'm going to read that again. The Pharisee stood, verse 11, and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So there's one word that jumps out. It's the littlest word in there, and it's repeated so many times. It really jumps out. I. 
this guy is focused on himself. That's just clear. Jesus is, even in how this is written and, and expressed, Jesus is making that point from a lot of different angles, and that's one of the key angles. Look how many times he uses the word I, and contrast that with the simple, humbler, one use of the personal pronoun of me. That's what the tax collector says, be merciful to me. And this, um, in contrast, this Pharisee says I five times. He is self-focused, self-referential, self-centered. Notice also how all of his judgments are not vertical, but horizontal. All of his estimation, all of his self-assessment as he goes through this prayer and rehearses his righteousness, it's kind of a rehearsal of his good deeds, but it's all in con- it's all in comparison to other men. Yes, he gives thanks to God for it, but he says, I thank you that I'm not like other men. And so everything that follows just is, is a comparison to other men. I'm not like them in this way. I'm not like them in that way. I'm not like them in the other way. He elevates himself above everyone. He rehearses his virtues. He says, I'm no swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. The commentators on this passage, uh, it was interesting because my immediate thought reading it in the text was, oh, really? 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 Clearly, you've never read the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus shows how deep the law goes and its application. Yeah, Jesus says, you've heard not to commit adultery, but have you heard of heart adultery? Let me introduce you to adultery and with fresh eyes so you can see yourself. He says, yeah, you've heard not to commit murder, but have you ever said to somebody, you fool? Well, you've committed murder, heart murder. That was my first thought. The commentators say, no, let's take this guy at his word. He says he's not a swindler. He says he's not unjust. He says he's not an adulterer. You know, Paul, looking back on his pre-converted life, said the same thing. A Pharisee of Pharisees. These guys are serious men. They take holiness seriously. Let's not write him off. I think if Jesus were with this man, he would show him his sin, just as he did with other men like him who were convinced of their righteousness and were, in most respects, righteous according to the letter of the law. But Jesus knows the heart and he took people deep, deeper, pointed out the one thing lacking. <laughs> Jesus would have done that with this man, but nonetheless, the man is a serious man. He's devoted to the Lord in all the ways that matter. He keeps himself pure. He walks according to the law uprightly. And yet he's rejected. He goes further and he tells God how he goes above and beyond even. It's not that I've just kept your law. (laughs) I've gone further. I've done more. He says, I fast twice a week. So the law of God required only one fast a year on the day of atonement. But this guy is like, I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So the law, even there, required tithes of the fruit of the ground, produce of the cattle. That's what it requires. Fruit of the ground, you tithe that, the fruit of the ground, and the produce of the cattle. And this guy's like, I, t- I pay tithes on 
all that I get very carefully. So there were things in the Jewish schools that were argued about whether that should even be tithed over. It's such a small thing. Mint and cumin and even smaller things. Should we tie that too? And he's like, he's the kind of guy that says, well, better careful, better be careful. Let's do it, you know? I'll tie that too, because, you know, I just want to be right with God. One commentator says, by rehearsing these things, these are like what the Roman Catholic Church, I don't know if they still call it this, but in the past would call it works of super arrogation, above and beyond stuff, extra mile, holy acts. And by this, one commentator says, this man would bring God in as his debtor. The last and most important thing to notice is that he attributes success to the grace of God. He does. He says, I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Now, have you ever heard the phrase, there but for the grace of God go I? Have you ever felt that? It's not, I don't think it's in itself wrong. It's good to be thankful that God has preserved you from sin or given you a life of blessing and provision. And, and it's, like, it's good to, know, to notice those things. There are people who God has not blessed in that way who have run headlong into trouble or into sin. And if you haven't, bless God for it. That's not where this guy goes wrong. He's right to attribute the graces in his life, the helps, the, 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 the success in his life to the Lord. He's right to do that. Where does he go wrong? He's rejected by God because although he attributes his works to the grace of God, he's trusting in the merit of those works for his salvation. And this is the classic error of Roman Catholicism. It's called infusion infused righteousness as opposed to imputed. So those are some fancy words. You know what? Like you get an infusion of blood, right? If you need a blood transfusion, you get an infusion, or you can get an infusion of uh, Mary. Little Mary gets an infusion of, of like, what does she get? Vitamins or something. It's like this vitamin boost. Immunity. Immunity. An infusion. It's like they inject it into your body and then you've got it. And that's the theory that the Roman church puts forward for how you become right with God. It comes from God. It's a gift of grace. Nothing comes to you except as by the grace of God. So that's right. But once it comes, it's yours and you stand on the merits of that righteousness before God. Your works, faith, working through love, the love that God works in your heart becomes the righteous standard by which you are judged against God and his law. And as you get more infused, you get more righteous and eventually able to stand on your own two legs before God. That's this guy's error. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. John Calvin says this about him, let us realize that although a man may ascribe the praise for good works to God, although you give thanks to God for his good works, as you should, yet if you imagine 
that the righteousness of those works is the cause of your salvation or you trust in it, you're condemned for perverted pride. This is a serious business and it's a serious error. It's like a baptized version of just crass self-righteousness. It's a little more sophisticated than your average pagan self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is common to man. It's the, it's the most common scheme to answer the problems or the, the, the threatenings and the condemnations of our conscience. This is the Christian version of it. I thank you, God, that I'm so righteous and able to stand before you. You've, you've made me that way, and it's clear that he's trusting his confidence is in, his self, in himself, the things that he possesses. But listen, brothers and sisters, think about it. Think for just a second about your good works, which you have as a Christian, as a gift from God. Not denying that. You have them, and they're good. And they're from the Lord. But they're not that good. (laughs) They're not good enough. They're tainted by the corruptions of your flesh. If you had the experience of preaching today, you would know what, what exactly what I mean. It's like preparing to preach is just like, uh, it's, uh, you feel your, your own pride, you feel your ambition, you feel the struggle in your flesh between the flesh and the spirit. And you feel that in many places in your life. And you, though you have amazingly beautiful fruit that produced in you by God's spirit as a, as a testament to you that he's at work and as a means of assurance of salvation, because it's like the pledge and seal of the Spirit is the good works that God is producing in you. That's the sign that God's Spirit has been given to you and that you have His Spirit. It's still tainted by sin. It's still like filthy rags measured against God's perfections and His holiness. God is so holy that the holiest of angels cover their eyes. And if you had just a, a, for a moment you stopped and thought about his holiness, you'd realize, I got nothing. I really have nothing. So what's this guy failing to do? He's failing to think about God. He's thinking about himself. He's delusional. He's self-deceived. And he's forgotten God. Even while he, even while he thanks God for the goodness that he sees and senses in his life. What about the tax collector's prayer? Well, notice, first of all, where he positions himself. I'm going to read this for you. Verse 13. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. This is a very, very different prayer. You might think, well, you know, he needed to pray that prayer. (laughs) And this is the scandal, this is the barb in this parable. You need to pray that prayer. That's what Jesus is saying. This is you. You're the tax collector. 
You may not know it. You may be self-deceived and think you're the Pharisee, but you're really the tax collector and you should pray to God like this. Beat your breast and cry out to him. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Notice where he positions himself. It says, standing uh, some distance away, that's elsewhere almost always translated, standing afar off. He was afar off. So I think that's indicative of this guy's sense of himself, of his being a fish out of water. You know, I'm not the kind of guy that goes to church. I remember when God was calling me back to faith. When I first came to Bloomington, I was, God was calling me. Raised in the Christian home, left, abandoned the Lord and his people, and God was calling me. And I remember like coming to church, almost like I don't know why I'm there. I, I don't why am I, I, I don't, I remember look distinctly looking at myself in the mirror back at home after some church gatherings and saying to myself, who is this person? I don't, this is not the kind of thing I do. These are not the kind of people I like. Who is this person? Because I find myself doing these things and liking these people. <laughs> God was moving in my heart, calling me to faith. He's standing afar off, a fish out of water. He has a sense of unworthiness and reverence as he comes into the temple. Notice his posture. He wouldn't even lift up his eyes to heaven. He's so humiliated and humbled, so broken. He bows his head. He beats his chest in grief. And what does he say? He says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. But he doesn't even say that. He says, be merciful to me, the sinner. There is nobody else. All these other people I'm sure are great. (laughs) Look at that man up there, up front, with his hands raised. I wish I could be like him, but I'm not. Be merciful to me, the sinner. I'm the one here, I'm sure, that needs your mercy and kindness and forgiveness. Be merciful to me. It's just God and him. Uh, Let's pause for a second and remember this scene that I think is the likely situation that comes to mind whenever, when Jesus' audience around him is hearing this parable. They're at a worship service in the temple. One of the daily sacrifices has just been offered. A spotless lamb was selected carefully and washed and killed cut, placed on the burnt altar, offered up in flame and fire to the Lord. The smoke is going up, and there's a call to prayer. Everybody pray to the Lord. Seek the Lord while he may be found. And the tax collector uses his prayer in the way we read, and the The Pharisee, I mean, sorry, the Pharisee does, and the tax collector says, God be merciful to me, but that word merciful is actually a much deeper and more profound word. It's translated merciful, it's an okay translation, but it misses some very deep theology, core theology of the Christian life. And if you have an NASB, you can see in the notes that it is called out, but it says, God be propitiated to me, for me. We read that word 
in the assurance of pardon. It was pronounced by God from his word that Jesus came to be a propitiation for sin. And this is what he calls out. God, be propitiated. You can imagine how you might be moved if you were him. And there was this promise held out by the priests that this was, a, this was for sin. This covers sin. And the Spirit of God has led him there, and there's been this moving sacrament observed, and he says, God, be propitiated to me, the sinner. Propitiation is, a, is, is an offering that makes someone right or makes, makes, makes God happy. A, 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 a vicarious sacrifice, an animal sacrifice. The pagans propitiated their gods. The God of Israel, our God, in the Old Testament, provided an animal sacrifice, a way tangibly for his people to, to seek and be assured of God's forgiveness through propitiation, sacrifice that would be pleasing to God and which would cause him to show favor to people he would otherwise be furious with. God be propitiated for me, the sinner. So, that was his prayer. Which one of these men should go to heaven? That's what Jesus is putting out there. Tell me, which one of these men should go to heaven? What do you think? Jesus says of the tax collector, I tell you, this man, this vile man, this man you would despise if he came into this church, this man went home to his house justified, right with God, in a right standing with him, forgiven of his sin, who God looks on as with his pleasure and says, I'm okay with this guy. He's my son. I love him. Just, justified. That's how he went home that day. Not the other one. And what's the principle behind that that Jesus brings out? What's behind this story? the principle. Verse 14, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But he who humbles himself will be exalted. Remember my definition of self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is a claim of standing or worth that we impute to ourselves with our own inner voice. It's based on selective judgments and subjective criteria and always coming at the expense of others. It's a scheme to establish a hope for ourselves. It's a hopeless scheme. It will fail us. What you need is a declarative voice outside of yourself that has authority and power to grant such things. God himself, who is the righteous judge of all the earth, you, there's no substitute for this, need him to pronounce you righteous. You need him to pronounce you righteous. He will. 
but only if you're humble. Only if you seek him in humility like this tax collector. Only if you say, I have nothing. You have everything. I have no right to it. Would you forgive me? Would you be propitiated by the sacrifice? And what's the sacrifice that he himself has provided? The sacrifice of his son. He has propitiated his wrath. He poured it out entirely on his son. He's fully satisfied. No more anger against the sins of those who will come to him humbly and seek him and say, would you apply that to me? Would you make me one of the forgiven as you've promised? To me, the sinner. Brothers and sisters, you right now here, look at your hearts. Forget everybody else. Look at yourself. You need God to pronounce you forgiven. And he will not forgive you unless you are humble. couple of scriptures from Isaiah that I love. Isaiah 57:15 says, "Thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place." And also with the contrite and the lowly of spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Isaiah 66, verse 2. For my hand made all these things. Thus all these things came into being, declared the, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look, to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Do you tremble at the word of the Lord? Are you humble and contrite? Do you spend your life looking and comparing yourself to others? That is awful bondage. Jesus died to save you from it. And it is a hopeless cause. Your problem is not how good other people are around you, how well they're doing in comparison to you. That is not your problem. What is your problem? God and his holiness, and his law, and how you have violated it. That's your problem. Forget everybody else and look at God and plead with him for mercy. He loves to be merciful to people who seek it that way. He loves it. That's, I said this in the early service, forgive the expression, that's why he gets out of bed in the morning. That's what he's up to because it magnifies his glory and his mercy in forgiveness. He is not about you and your glory. He's about his own. And his glory is magnified as people depend on him and seek the forgiveness that he has purchased at the cost of his own blood. High price. He values it highly. 
and he won't let you tread all over it with your puny righteousness, which doesn't measure up in the slightest. You seek the Lord in humility. I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. You seek the Lord in humility. And he loves to be gracious to people like you. Like this tax collector. This is what he's about. I'd love to be that tax collector going home to his house with a sense of forgiveness, excited about the next time to come to worship, (laughs) full of gratitude. Think what this kind of humility pleading with God produces. It produces love for others because you're not busy comparing yourself with people around you and trying, you know, like, you know, squaring off with everybody and finding your place. (laughs) You're just like free to love. Free to appreciate. Free to be thankful because I just got off. I had no hope. God forgave me. We, on our website, as a church for a long time, maybe it's still there, I don't know, but it said, this is a place for sinners. That's what we aspire to be. We want a place where you can be a sinner, be out as a sinner. (laughs) You're a sinner? Me too. (laughs) That's where love is where people are like, oh, God's grace to me is so great. You have his grace too in your life at the point of your sin. We're brothers. Let's love. Let's serve the Lord together. Think of the patience it produces. Yeah, I know, I know. I know it's okay to be weak. It's okay to mess up. I can forgive you. I can be patient with you. Because, oh my goodness, I know my sin. I know God's incredible patience and kindness with me. This is the good stuff. This is where the spring from which all the good stuff flows. Which one of these men are you most like? That's a good question to ponder as we come to the Lord's table together and celebrate the Holy Supper. So elders, if you would come forward, would you? I want to say just a few words. I asked the question, which one of these men are you most like? And I want to read to you just a couple of sentences from our usual liturgy book, if I can find this. These are words that were written to be communicated to congregations by faithful pastors from centuries ago at such times like this, surrounding the Lord's Supper and its celebration. And here's a couple of sentences, words that if you're from our church, you're familiar with. We do not come to this supper as righteous in ourselves, but we come to seek our life in Christ. There is only one way to come and have the grace offered to you in this meal, and that is be merciful to me, a sinner, the sinner. 
we do not come to this table as righteous in ourselves, so do not come if you're righteous in yourself. If you're smug, if you're self-satisfied, if, you've, if you're spending your time in life looking down your nose at others and thinking you're better, then do not come. That's an outrage. This is not for you. But if you're a baptized believer in good standing of a Bible-believing church, this one, somewhere else, and you this morning are, are feeling, I need the Lord, I need his mercy, I need his help, and you come and receive it, and he's got lots of it for you. A feast of mercy is spread before you today, and Christ invites you to it. Beloved in the Lord, listen carefully to the words of the institution of the Holy Supper of our Lord Jesus Christ as they are delivered by the Holy Apostle Paul, who said, I've received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do you as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and his ministry. We thank you for the Lord Jesus and his faithfulness to speak the truth in love. We thank you for the power of your Holy Spirit who takes these words and applies them to our hearts, who convicts us of sin and of righteousness and judgment. We thank you for your mercy. Oh Lord, we need it. Would you deepen within us even as we walk forward to receive a sense of our need that we would be truly contrite and humble of heart. That we would come to you empty-handed, not clinging to any confidence except what you have put forward by way of your word, by way of promise, in the Lord Jesus Christ and in his satisfaction for sin on the cross. And Lord, as we put the bread into our mouth and taste of the cup, I pray that you would assure us of your mercy and pardon and of your love for sinners like us. We thank you for your love, and I pray, Lord, that this, all of these things would be returned to you in praise and gratitude and faithful obedience day by day. In Christ's name we pray, amen. As we partake of this and come forward, we're all gonna stand and sing together. So let's do that now and come and receive of the Lord Jesus.